Welcome to this special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria Podcast, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. I'm your host, Fred Dews. With the presidential election only weeks away, the Election 2016 Project at Brookings has been presenting a series of public events and policy papers that focus on recommendations for the next president about key issues. In these special events, veteran journalist Indira Lakshmanan of the Boston Globe moderates conversations with our experts in front of a live audience at Brookings in Washington, D.C. In this third event, senior fellows Fiona Hill and Tom Wright examined how the next president can affect the future of U.S. alliances and the international liberal order. You can subscribe to Brookings Podcasts on iTunes or listen to episodes on our website, brookings.edu. You can find the policy papers on our website at brookings.edu slash America's Future. Here's Indira Lakshmanan and our panelists. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Brookings for what I am sure is going to be a lively and provocative discussion. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, Washington columnist for the Boston Globe, and today's event is the third in a series of live tapings for the Brookings Podcast Network that feature big ideas from Brookings scholars on how the next president should tackle the world's toughest problems. This morning, we're going to focus on America in the world, specifically its relationship with European allies, NATO, and Russia. Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have articulated worldviews during this campaign that are virtually polar opposites, I think it's safe to say. Clinton has argued for an internationalist approach that builds on the foreign policy of President Obama and her own foreign policy as Secretary of State, while Trump is pushing for an America that might turn its focus inward by questioning longstanding alliances, international agreements, and foreign trade, while at the same time reimagining a more positive relationship with Russia. I'm delighted to have today for our conversation Brookings experts Fiona Hill and Thomas Wright, who will help us navigate the ways in which the next president could or should treat traditional U.S. alliances and engage with Russia, and how all of this will affect the international order over the next four to eight years. We're going to start with Fiona, who is an expert in the U.S.-Russia relationship, and I'd like you to please lay out for us your policy recommendations for the next president. What should the next, how should the next president approach Russia, and what would you say success looks like over the next four years? Well, I'll start with the uh, um, question about what will success look like. Um, I think, actually, there's a rather minimal bar that uh, perhaps we should uh, be setting uh, for ourselves right now. We're in one of the most contentious um, uh, relationships with Russia that we've been in in a long while. Uh, most Russia experts are arguing, is it worse than the 1940s, you know, at the beginning uh, of the Cold War, immediately after World War II? Is it worse than the 1980s when we had uh, a major war scare? Which I think gives you, you know, kind of a bit of a flavour of the kinds of discussions that we're having about the state of, uh, of that relationship. Uh, so basically getting us off a path of confrontation and heightened rhetoric of accusing each other of being involved in our political uh, systems and in elections uh, as, as is happening you know, currently would already be a step forward. So I think we can very easily set a, a minimal bar here. We're not going to be returning to the idea of a reset in relations, grand bargain, strategic partnerships with Russia. So that's the first point, basically getting ourselves off a confrontational path, taking down the rhetoric and finding a way of having a more normalised uh, discourse with Russia and figuring out how we can move that relationship forward would already be um, a, a sign of success. The second point is that we have to stop thinking about Russia in a very narrow context. 
Uh, one of the points that's been uh, made uh, about Russia uh, during the Obama administration is that Russia is a regional power, meaning that Russia is a regional power within a European context. I think we've seen, um, certainly since Russia's intervention in Syria in 2015, that Russia's idea of a European region is much more extensive than just what we would think of as the normal European theatre defined by NATO and the European Union. Russia also has uh, very important sets of relationships with China and interactions in the Asia-Pacific, because Russia is a very large country. I mean, it's kind of the most obvious thing to say. And when Russians think about their foreign policy and their position in the world, they do think in a, a multi-regional context. For Russia, um, for them, it's not just Europe and then the Middle Near East, extending from the Black Sea to the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, it's also Central and South Asia, uh, the borderlands with, uh, with uh, India, Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's also then the Asia-Pacific, their relationship with China, North Korea and Japan, and also then, frankly, with Canada and the United States across the Pacific. I mean, they're, they're actually one of our interlocutors in the Asia-Pacific region as well. And then Russia is, of course, the big Arctic power and a major player on the Arctic Council and lots of separate interactions with Canada and other um, Arctic uh, nations. So we need to have a holistic view of Russia. We need to figure out how Russia fits into all these other relationships and not just try to put Russia into a box. And that's one of the ways that we will be able to tackle this. So one of my first recommendations would be not to just slice up the relationship with Russia into little segments, because that's one of the uh, ways that we're getting ourselves into trouble. And then we have to focus, and I think this is where you know, I, uh, we should bring um, Tom in on this, on really building up our alliance structure. All of our allies are in trouble, perhaps with the exception of Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, <laughs> among some of our you know, key partners. Uh, uh, in terms of our alliance structure in Europe, Europe's been battered by the Eurozone crisis, uh, then by Brexit, obviously by the migration and refugee crisis. Uh, we've had then in the Middle East um, our traditional allies there battered by all of the events since the Arab Spring in 2011, the complete breakdown of the Middle East order. And then in the Asia-Pacific, we clearly have all of our alliances under considerable question, partly as a result of this presidential campaign, frankly, uh, but also because of uh, big questions about the future of China. So we're going to have to take, uh, I think, a very serious approach at looking at all of our regional alliances and figuring out how we work with our allies to tackle uh, critical issues. And Russia will be one of those, uh, those topics. But the first step is trying to figure out how to take down uh, the confrontation. And we can talk a little bit more about that. So whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, neither of them should pull out that reset button that uh, Hillary brought with her to Russia on, I think, her first trip as Secretary of State, the one with the misspelled reset. Yes. No uh, one should try to do that the, again. And the irony of that was that the um, mistranslation was overload. And uh, instead of reset, the <laughs> button had overload. And I think That's pretty got, true. And that's what's <laughs> happened. I mean, it was actually very prophetic. Uh, we've, we've got an overloaded uh, relationship. We have to figure out how to reduce some of that load. Wow. I think um, Donald Trump is making a gambit for he knows how to do this, but I said we'll have to, we'll have to see. Well, you know, you, you mentioned Donald Trump, and so I want to ask you, he has said so many differing things about Russia. On the one hand, he has said that, you know, in the past he said Vladimir Putin might be his best friend. Now he says, I don't really know Vladimir Putin. He's talked about how the U.S. shouldn't get involved in the world. At the same time, he said we could have such a better relationship with the whole world if we were just friends with Russia, and I can do that. He's also said that we should accept that Crimea is part of Russia and that our allies should pay their weight 
and pull their own freight and not expect us to do um, to do it for them. So where is Donald Trump on Russia? Well, that's a very good question. Um, Tom has written a lot about uh, Donald Trump's uh, foreign policy, so I'll leave uh, some of uh, the finer points uh, to, to Tom, but I won't punt on this uh, question. I think... Um, if we're looking at uh, the approach and you know, giving um, Donald Trump the benefit of the doubt here, I think he's clearly approaching engaging with Russia through the eyes of a deal. You know, this is the man who wrote the book about the art of the deal. And actually, there's something to be said uh, for looking at the relationship with Russia in that context, because that's how uh, many in the Russian political class view relations very transactional. They also want to make deals, but they want to know who can deliver. So irrespective of whether uh, Donald Trump is laying out the contours of potentially being able to make a deal on certain issues as he's you know, throwing out there, as he said, he doesn't know uh, Vladimir Putin uh, yet, <laughs> uh, and he's, but he's trying to kind of throw out there the contours of um, I'm ready to sit down at the table, I could make a deal on some of these issues. Uh, the Russian um, government wants to see that whoever sits down at the table with them can deliver on things that they undertake. So the big challenge for any president, irrespective of whether it's Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, is they'll have to show that if they're um, sitting at a table with the Russians, that they know what they want, first of all, and that if they're making any undertakings, that there's going to be uh, something delivered and that the expectations are the same. Because the problem with our reset uh, policy, uh, how it got overloaded, was it was meant to change the tone of the relationship to be able to move forward with Russia on issues like the Iran nuclear program, on dealing with Afghanistan. It wasn't really about resetting the US-Russia relationship, uh, per se, and putting that into a different front. And Moscow then expected an awful lot from the United States. It actually thought that the US was going to change its policy on a whole host of things, from democracy promotion to the expansion of NATO, uh, perhaps to you know, support for um, uh, other uh, EU enlargement or other issues in Russia's neighborhood. And that wasn't what that was about. Well, because, the, in fact, the US in that case was the one being transactional, saying, we need your help, Russia, with the northern distribution network to get supplies into Afghanistan. We need your help, Russia, um, sitting down with the P5 plus one to make an Iran nuclear deal. This was, of course, before we needed their help with Syria, but the U.S. had its little checklist and, as you say, did not intend to That's readjust right. other things, wanted to transactionally do what was good for us. That's exactly right. So that's the framework that we have to operate in. We have to understand if we're going to make it that transactional, that we have to be very clear so that the expectations are, uh, are exactly the same. So irrespective of who the president is, they're going to have to figure that out. Well, I suppose in uh, foreign policy as in life, when somebody wants to get something transactionally, the other party often wants other that's right, things other attached. Things it doesn't top, always yeah, work yeah. that way. And Russia's got a long list. <laughs> yes, it certainly does. Yeah. Okay, for those of you in this room or watching our live stream who might be tweeting this event, please use, um, please tag at Brookings Inst or at Brookings FP and you can use the hashtag elections2016. All right, Tom, you have written extensively not only about Donald Trump and his foreign policy, but also about the U.S.-Europe relationship, particularly with respect to Brexit and, um, and the European posture in general of both candidates. So I want to hear what you think the next president should do to improve or change the world order, or should it stay exactly as it is? And what does he or she need to achieve within the first 100 days to use that hackneyed old yeah. <laughs> um, you know, construction to get us there? Um, yeah, thank you. And it's a great uh, pleasure to be here um, this morning. Um, 
You know, I think it's, it's difficult to answer that question about both candidates because they're so fundamentally different. I don't think you can really give advice to, you know, to, to both of them together because Trump, I think, if he was elected, would, would immediately, uh, it would immediately lead to sort of a crisis in, in Washington in terms of what his foreign policy would look like and would he adhere to the sort of core visceral beliefs that he's had over several, you know, decades or would he gravitate more toward the center and bring in mainstream um, Republicans? And my view is that he is a more ideological candidate than we often appreciate. And while there's a lot of bluster and uh, a lot of ignorance on a wide variety of issues, um, there are certain things that he has been pretty uh, consistent on. He's been consistently, I think he's opposed to US alliances. It's not just burden sharing. I think he's opposed to them. And I think he would try to withdraw the U.S. from security commitments around the world. Um, he's opposed to free trade and would like to sort of go more toward a mercantilist system. And I think he is pro-Russian. He is pro-authoritarian. He has a foreign policy that's very consistent uh, with Russia's um, national interests. And I think there's a uh, he is a he will have a complicated relationship with with Putin for many um, reasons. But I think that the the upshot of it all is, is that he will he will be fairly compliant in terms of what Putin uh, wants, and I think he he will cut a deal that's pretty transactional. I think the deal will be Russian help to fight ISIS, and he'll ally with Assad and Putin in Syria in exchange for um, neglect of uh, NATO in Europe and allowing NATO to atrophy. And you know, I don't think Russia will make a major move because why would you make a major move when? The president of the United States is essentially acting, uh, uh, you know, in a manner consistent with your interests, but that that would be essentially the environment we will be in, um, and that would generate all sorts of pushback and 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 and, and opposition uh, within Washington, within the U.S. foreign policy um, world, and I, I think we have no idea where that would end up and the repercussions of it. So I think if Trump wins. There really will, I think, first, it will be a tremendous shock to everyone. No one's really expecting it, and it will be one of the greatest sort of shocks in foreign policy and international order in, in, in decades. Um, I think the more, the, the easier part of the, it's not an easier part of the question, but on, on Hillary Clinton, um, I think that's a more traditional one in terms of what should she do, what the first 100 days is, how it would differ. And I'll just make a couple of brief points um, here. You know, it will be a third Democratic term, and obviously she was President Obama's Secretary of State, and so there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of discussion on whether or not she is uh, going to be different or the same. Um, every president is unique on foreign policy. Every president has their own perspective and view, whether it's a doctrine or a philosophy or an approach, including presidents from the same party. Uh, president George H.W. Bush was different than President Reagan. President Truman was different than President Roosevelt in very significant ways. And so Hillary Clinton will be no exception. She too will be different than President Obama. There will be, and that's a natural, normal thing. The, the foreign policy will evolve. President Obama will be different in his third term if he could run and, and, and win one than he was in his second or in his first. So there's a natural evolution that occurs because events, um, uh, events move on. And then there's also the personal uh, sort of approach. So I think the question is how um, will she be different? And there I think it's hard to say for sure because she has a political incentive at the moment 
to minimize the difference with President Obama. And so we could go about it and look at every detail of every statement she says and says, how is that different from what President Obama said and really parse every word. But that runs the risk of overestimating or overemphasizing minor differences that she didn't really intend. So how I would go about it is to say, what is the critique from sort of democratic-leaning foreign policy observers and experts and policymakers about the Obama administration? Like, is there a alternative view out there from the Obama administration? And maybe if that's consistent with what Hillary Clinton has stood for in the past, maybe that's where uh, they will go. And I think there is one. Um, and I think it basically is viewing uh, international politics more toward, through a geopolitical lens and more through a regional lens. And, uh, and seeing what's happening, particularly in those three uh, key strategic theaters in the Middle East, in East Asia, and in Europe, as, as very important and, uh, and the deterioration there damaging to the international order and to US interests, and seeing a US role in trying to stabilize and shore up those regional orders. If you look at the Obama administration, uh, the president's view, I think, is that particularly in the Middle East, the greatest risk is getting drawn um, further in and that the US has no inherent interest in imposing or really sponsoring an equilibrium in the region and that this needs to be done by the powers themselves. The US has some narrow interest, but he sees it as his role to really limit America's exposure to the Middle East. I think uh, President Clinton would be more likely to see a key US role in trying to stabilize the region. So the question is, how would that come about? It probably would be by re-engaging with America's allies uh, in the region, particularly some of the Sunni um, Arab states. Similarly, in Europe, as Fiona was mentioning, in terms of with Russia, I think they, they, they will see a very key sort of US role in trying to shore up uh, the European Union and NATO, and then also balancing Russia. I think the problem um, that, the, the problem that uh, she will face is that Russia is going to be, I think, a real, a, a real difficulty. I can see how she gets to a relatively constructive relationship with Russia at some point, but I don't see how she gets there without a very difficult first year, right. because there's all of these, you, you know, there's all of these crises and problems, uh, including the fact that Russia has just interfered in the U.S. election, which I think will be a substantial issue after the campaign and that there will be a U.S. response to that, and it will be, it will be significant. Um, and then there's the Syria part, where there's you know, an obvious clash over the no-fly zone, and there are other things, too. So I think it will be, she will have no honeymoon. It will be a very tough sort of foreign policy uh, environment for her, um, a very difficult six months. Um, but I think that the message um, that they need to send is to, is to really you know, show what they're you know, what their policy is that this, you know, they may want to show this is a tougher sort of right. team in town and trying to uh, sort of lay out key sort of U.S. interests in these different regions and then acting uh, to bolster them. Well, you mentioned the tougher team in town. Of course, um, the key here and a difference between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is that vo both Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, know Hillary Clinton very well. They've met her on many occasions when she's been to Russia or she's been at international meetings, and Sergei Lavrov has met her all over the world, um, whereas they don't really know who they're dealing with in Donald Trump other than his public rhetoric. Um, and, you know, even though certainly Clinton is leading in the polls and it looks like she will probably win, 
nothing is over until it's over. So I want to ask you um, to describe for us a little bit, since you've looked at it quite closely, Trump's rhetoric towards Russia. I, I'm, I'm sort of trying to think through the lens of someone who's studied China, because, mm -hmm. of course, American foreign policy experts over the last decade have talked about a supposed G2 mm -hmm. with China, this idea, you know, we're the two great powers. We don't have to be oppositional superpowers. It doesn't have to be a Cold War of any sort, but we can sort of lead the world together through this constructive cooperative G2. Is what Trump is suggesting between the U.S. and Russia similar to this G2 idea? Um, <clears throat> well, maybe to, yeah, I think it is to some degree. It's an interesting way of, I hadn't thought about it in that, in the G2 um, way. Um, just uh, in terms of his rhetoric on Russia, I think he's been pretty consistent. I mean, he's always had a fond spot for Russia. He went to Russia in 1990, he came back, he was really disillusioned by Gorbachev. He thought Gorbachev was a disaster. Uh, he said that he thought that Gorbachev should have behaved more like the Chinese in Tiananmen Square, and that that would have been a much stronger approach and would have shown there was, a, you know, there was the rule of law and order. So Trump's Russia. nothing if not consistent, so, actually, you know, over the decades. Yeah, and so ever, you know, he he has had various interests in Russia. It's really been remarkable during the campaign. The easiest thing for him to say in the world would have been, I have concerns about Vladimir Putin, of course. Of course, I'm worried about what he's doing in Eastern Europe, uh, but I think we have common interests. He has been unable to even say that, right? He has consistently brought up Russia in a positive way, Putin in a positive way, including in the last debate when he didn't have to. There was nothing that said he had to do that. And his, his rebuttal to the accusation and that he is pro-Russia is, I don't know Putin, I don't really have anything to do with Russia. It's not, I have concerns about Putin, or there are real reasons for worry, or we have alliance commitments that are important. The only leader, the leader who sought a meeting with him at the UN uh, General Assembly that he refused to meet was the Ukrainian uh, leader. I mean, they intervened in the Republican National Committee platform uh, to change the language on, on Ukraine. You're uh, talking about Russia through Paul Manafort, yeah. Trump's then campaign chairman and other um, influencers around him who have close ties to Russia. Right, but even after Manafort left, there was the, the I think the UNGA thing, the UN thing was after Manafort left. But the platform was, the platform, was under The platform was, under, um, was, was, was Manafort. Manafort. But it, so I think he, he has a, for whatever reason, he has sort of a view that Russia is a partner that he does not want to um, he does not want to offend us or anything critical of. There was a quite an interesting article in Politico uh, with the um, uh, the biographers of Trump and asking what he was up to. These are the six people who've written biographies, and one of them said, you know, maybe this is because he wants Putin's help because Putin, you know, is his only shot at terms of winning the election. So that's one sort of theory. The other theory is that he's you know, he genuinely sort of believes this. Um, so I think that's his, that's his track record. I mean, <laughs> I, and I just have, I don't think anyone can find anything where he says something contrary to that, where he lays out all these concerns about Russia or he talks about the importance of NATO's core mission. Um, so I think that is significant because he would save himself a lot of grief if he just said two sentences on concern. And despite much prompting, he hasn't done so. So that leads me to think that he does want a partnership, that he does see it as very transactional, that he really doesn't care about Eastern Europe or NATO. The one thing he seems to care about is ISIS and, and Syria, and he thinks Putin will help solve his 
problem uh, there. Uh, but the other thing I would just say in, in closing is that the, you know, the, the leaks and, and all of this interference and, and that we've seen, I mean, that's, people haven't really asked in terms of the, what that means if Trump was elected, right? Because why did we assume that these hackers, whoever they were, uh, didn't also hack the RNC, didn't also hack Trump? I mean, maybe they're just releasing what they have on the Democratic side. And so there is a question about, you know, there's a whole question there uh, in terms of what could come out afterwards and Putin's role in all of this and how that might affect the Trump administration. And, and so I think it's a very... It's a very sort of worrisome picture, and they have a lot of questions to answer. I mean, this is an unprecedented situation. No one has ever run for president proposing sort of a partnership with an authoritarian regime and a major power before. That's never happened. Well, maybe not in the US, but it certainly yeah. happened in other places. I mean, a, a, a sitting listening to this, um, you know, for um, many people in the audience probably, it isn't actually really all that shocking. I guess it's just shocking in the context of this particular presidential campaign when people have been expressing, you know, so many concerns, uh, especially about the hacking and the, the implications of all of this in the confrontation uh, with Russia overall. But if you, you know, travel outside of uh, the Beltway and Washington and the Northeast Corridor and get across America... Uh, and I've been doing a lot of that, as many of my other colleagues have, to you know, various uh, talks and uh, meetings. There's a very strong um, uh, sense of, um, yeah, Putin's the man. You know, kind of this is a strong leader, and you know, there's quite a bit of admiration. I have, I have literally been in you know, very different settings from this, where people have come up to me and said, well, he's the guy. You know? I mean, we should have leaders like this who push our interests you know, basically to the detriment of others and, you know, basically are pushing these very strongly. And when you get around Europe and, you know, outside of um, Europe in the Middle East, uh, you know, lots of travels. I was just in um, Turkey a week ago and in the Caucasus um, some time ago um, where there's some trepidation um, about Putin and Russia. There's also a kind of a feeling that there needs to be a strong hand. And there's, uh, even in places where there's quite a bit of concern about Russia and Russia's intentions towards their own country, there's also a, a deep but grudging admiration about the way that Putin has been able to push, with a weak hand, Russia's interests very strongly. Well, the way so, you're describing... So, you know, the idea is that Trump, you know, from the outside, is trying to do the same thing. Although people, I have to say, are very concerned about the idea of a Trump presidency, nonetheless, here in the US. Oh, so you mean even in the same places around America where you're hearing Americans express grudging admiration or open admiration for Putin as a strong authoritarian leader, those are not the same people who are themselves supporting Trump for president? No, outside of the U.S. it's a bit more complex. Yeah. Uh, but inside the U.S. Um, I've um, often um, found that there There's is an link. overlap, but not always an overlap. Interestingly, uh, some of the, and this is getting a little off our topic, but I, but I have seen um, that the one, I think it was a Pew study that showed that the most, um, the, the, the thing that is most important to you that's going to determine whether you like Trump or not is whether you like authoritarian leaders. If you like authoritarian leaders, then you like Trump. Um, they looked at a number of characteristics, but yeah. that was interesting. All right, well, let me ask you, though, Fiona, even if Trump loses the election, do you feel that his rhetoric on Russia is going to have a lasting overhang beyond this election, or is it going to be overshadowed by other sort of more concrete issues like the hacking of the you know, the hacking of the emails and any potential election tampering which U.S. intelligence agencies have warned about? 
Well, I think those two things have actually gone together because, as we may recall, part of that rhetoric has also included egging on. Yes, uh, saying, please, the, uh, please you know, if you have the 30,000 emails, can you, can you, please you know, release send them. them out, send them our way. Yeah. And, um, you know, part of this is, um, you know, frankly, uh, the way that we approach um, many of these issues in our own um, discourse about politics. Vladimir Putin um, rather um, pointedly uh, said in a, an interview where he was asked about uh, the hacking, um, essentially, well, of course, we had nothing to do with it, but really, does it matter, um, you know, that, that this information was hacked? Uh, it, doesn't it matter more about the content? I mean, that's a kind of a paraphrase. But this is the same uh, line that Trump has taken. Who cares, you know, how we got all of this information? What really matters is the information. So, look, I think this is part of our domestic debate about transparency here. You know, is, is this all in the public good um, for us to have, be having this debate if it can be also then manipulated by people from the outside? So I think this whole issue um, is going to be with us for some time. It's not just going to be in the context of Russia. It's going to be in the context then of the way we ourselves discuss issues and deal with information. And so I think, I think we've got ourselves into quite a mess um, as a result of uh, this election. And Russia is part of it. Uh, and it's, but it's not the only source, is it, of hacking? I mean, we're not really clear, let's be totally frank about it, is who is that exactly has done, done the Although hacking. Although something like 17 U.S. national security intelligence agencies have said, and actually not just said I, with I a high degree can, of... Exactly, but they can't say for sure, knowing something about this, who exactly ordered this. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what we can be sure is, if there were Russian hackers, they were not being reined in by the Kremlin. There was not any restraint here. So there's clearly an intent to let this play out for uh, as, long as, it, uh, as long as it's got legs. Mm -hmm. And then there's an awful lot of people who are, you know, jumping onto the bandwagon of this as well and just doing this themselves. I mean, there's a recent um, hack of um, a Russian um, official um, on uh, some of their attitudes towards Ukraine that appears to have been done by sort of a self-appointed internet vigilante. You know, we're getting an awful lot of that happening now as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I, that's what I say about we've really kind of pushed this uh, to and the a, a very out of the large bottle. extent. Yeah, the genie's <laughs> completely out of the bottle. I mean, I would just recommend to everybody never send an email again. Yes. I mean, there was a recent <laughs> column about, you know, emojis. I mean, I think that's what my emo uh, emails are going to look like. You know, good, good luck on interpreting them in the future. <laughs> but I think we're really in this kind of space now where everything is fair game. And that's where we really have had a huge jump in this uh, presidential election cycle. During the Cold War, there was a lot of this spy versus spy. There was a good piece in Reuters recently about pointing out that the Soviet Union, you know, really tried to influence the election of Ronald Reagan by putting out, you know, information. Uh, we've got lots of evidence, you know, through the whole Soviet period. Books have been written about this, about the, the ways that we've all tried to interfere in each other's politics. But social media and the internet and the ubiquity of emails and cell phones sitting next to yours, you know, here, um, you know, really just uh, put the opportunities for mischief in a completely uh, different space than they've ever been before. And everybody is uh, basically involved in this. So right, well, this, let's, this genie is very much out of the bottle and this is not going to go Agreed. All right. Well, let's set aside the hacking issue and the tampering issue for a moment. And let's drill down a bit on alliances. And Tom, I want to ask you because, you know, 
on the one hand, we certainly have some oppositional interests to Russia's. At the same time, they're, they're not just out there to hack the U.S. election and hack Democratic email. They're also a regional actor with their own national interests in certain parts of the world, um, in Europe, in Asia, in the Middle East. So I wonder, in your view, is it possible that Russia will continue to challenge U.S. leadership in certain regions, like Europe and the Middle East, where it sees itself as having core national interests, while perhaps engaging with the U.S. in a more cooperative way to counterbalance what both the U.S. and Russia see as a rising China? Um, that's a great uh, question. I think Russia will continue to cooperate with the U.S. where its interests um, suggest that it, it should. And so the Iran nuclear deal was a good example. There were other issues, um, counterterrorism, uh, maybe other issues as well, where that cooperation will continue. And I think one of the one of the uh, important things is not to allow the tensions over Eastern Europe and Ukraine or in the Middle East to spill over onto all of these global issues. That that also works both ways, though. I think it's yeah. important that we don't let the need for cooperation on global issues crowd out the importance of pushing back regionally where um, there is uh, disagreement. Um, China is an interesting um, case. I, I don't see really the U.S. and Russia cooperating on, on, on China. I mean, Russia has, I think, long-term concerns about the rise of China, but it, it, it views that as secondary to its uh, confrontation with the West at the moment in a sort of, a, I think, had a dialogue with itself about, about relegating that to sort of a second priority as status for the time being. Although there are people in Russia who've written um, to the contrary and said that uh, China is more of a, of a problem. Um, but I don't think that's where Putin um, is headed. It's interesting how Putin is acting in, in, in Asia because, of course, he's trying to get closer to China, but he's not just trying to get closer to China. He's also trying to build a regional role for Russia and is working more closely with Japan as well in terms of the dialogue and the, the Russian-Japanese dialogue, um, particularly over some of the outstanding issues from the Second World War, I think is, is one where the U.S. has been engaged too uh, as sort of a cautious actor, sort of saying, you know, just be careful about going uh, too far um, here. And so that sort of trilateral uh, diplomacy, I think, will be interesting to watch because obviously Japan is a very important sort of key ally um, of the United States. And there are, we're not sort of talking about it this morning, but there are many issues in Asia where where um, Japan will be crucial to and, and the re rebuilding, well, not rebuilding, but deepening the alliances um, applies to all three regions, not just to Europe and, and, and to the Middle East. Um, so I think it will be, um, you know, there, there will be a variety of issues. There will be some scope um, for cooperation, um, but there are these really large issues where there are divergence of, of interests, and that's sort of what worries me um, is in that first year um, on, on Ukraine, on Syria, on the, on the cyber front. You know, is there a way to, and, and also getting over the fact that Putin and Clinton don't like each other at all, right? you know, um, which I think is, is a non-trivial mm, dimension yeah. to this. How do we sort of, you know, establish a clear, uh, a clear position to push back where it's necessary, but then get to some sort of stable equilibrium where there's predictability and, and, and stability. All right, well, you know, you've talked about 
um, you know, there, there are very oppositional interests in Ukraine and in Syria and some other places. So let's sort of broaden the lens on this. And let me just ask you more generally, is Russia an existential threat to U.S., EU, NATO interests? And are we entering a new Cold War? Um, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say existential threat, but I think there are, I mean, th there is a, there is a core uh, problem there, which is in Europe, uh, Russia sees the EU as a threat to its uh, regime's interests, um, sees the expansion of the EU and the, the color revolutions that it sees as sponsored by the US um, and Europe as a, as a real um, danger. And it's obviously uh, pretty active within the European Union in trying to promote uh, discord and some of these populist and more nationalist movements. And a strong European Union is a core US interest and has been since the beginning of the EU. So that's, I think, one area where it's quite sort of complex. Um, but you could say that there is a Russia dimension to the problems that the EU has. Um, and then there's also the nuclear side, which is coming, you know, which is coming back um, as an issue that probably is more existential, you know, on both sides. So I, I, I don't think we're going back to a Cold War at all. And I think it's really important not to sort of allow that frame uh, to come back in because it's much more um, complex and multidimensional and there are areas for cooperation as well and, and, and even some interdependence with Russia um, as well. Um, but there is, I think, a, a competition and it's important to sort of manage that in a responsible way. Well, competition is a positive frame for it. Cold War is the negative frame that we often hear. Um, Fiona, where do you come down on this? And then I want to ask you, you know, the major tool that the U.S. and the EU have used against Russia in the last several years, particularly over Ukraine, has been sanctions. Yeah. Um, they, ha you know, maybe they've been effective in tightening, um, you know, putting pressure on Russia's economy. They have not been effective in terms of getting Russia to actually change its behavior. Um, so if those crumble, either because there's a split between the U.S. and the EU or within the EU, what alternatives do we have? So well, first, the Cold War piece yes, of the question. Yes, well, that's, that's why I'd like to start, actually, because um, I think, you know, what Tom has presented is, you know, spot on as an analysis from our perspective. If you flip it and look at the Russian uh, perspective, uh, they actually do believe that we are an existential threat to them. Hmm. And that this is something that has built up over a period of time. And you just have to take a, 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 a close look at Russia's military strategy, which has been evolving um, over uh, the last uh, decade. And you can see a strategy that's built on, actually, um, a, a, a strategic um, perspective on preemption. Russia sees a threat from the United States and from NATO um, on the conventional side. And, of course, there is still the nuclear dimension here. And the Russians love to remind everybody uh, that they're the, still the one country that could um, basically destroy the, the United States in a nuclear war. But they're equally as mindful of the fact that uh, they can be we, could do, we could do the same. <laughs> yeah. uh, Russia has also put out um, um, a strategic perspective that in the future it wants to make sure that no more wars are fought, fought on Russian territory. Now, you can actually, uh, so that's a fairly straightforward and completely understandable goal uh, for a Russia, unlike the United States, that has had two major world wars fought on its uh, territory to devastating effect. One bringing down the Russian Empire, and the second basically devastating the country in World War II with you know, the, the uh, big figure of 20 million people killed in, in the course of uh, this war. 
and again, you know, huge uh, losses as well as eventually some gains of territory. So the whole of uh, the Russian um, military uh, establishment is very much geared uh, to figuring out how a local war could turn into a much larger conflict and then preemptively moving in. And you can see that in Ukraine and in Syria. And Russia is fighting two wars now with the West in its view, with the United States directly in Ukraine and Syria. We just don't interpret it that way. And it's the Russians who've been pushing out the frame of this idea of Cold War 2.0 back to because it's back to the idea of two superpowers this is a g2 idea but in a military context of the united states and russia facing each other off certainly in this broader european theater but then of course it's not a g2 Europe, it's a proxy war exactly as it's not cooperative exactly right and then you know they've also pulled out the idea that um Syria is like the Korean War in the 1950. That's not how we've been describing it. You know, so we have to understand how the other side is, is presenting things. And we also have to see their own threat perceptions. So although we don't see it in this, uh, in this way, they certainly um, are seeing an existential threat from the United States that they're preemptively moving against, which is getting us constantly reacting to it. So that then brings us to this question of Ukraine, Crimea, and all of the sanctions. Uh, I um, you know, basically think that we have to put this again in a bigger context of what Russia is looking at. I want to have a little bit of a, a nuance on what Tom said about uh, China. Um, China is a very important relationship for Russia vis-a-vis -vis the way that they think they can react with the United States. They do worry about China over the longer term, but they also want to kind of create as much of a strategic partnership with China as possible. Where they are the weakest is in the Asia-Pacific and in the Arctic, as well as in their soft underbelly, which is Central Asia. And China is now in all of those places. Asia-Pacific, China is the dominant power. <clears throat> the G2 there is with the United States. In the Arctic, China is already making forays there. A lot of the Russian military buildup is against the idea that others like China may start to make claims on international waters and positions in the Arctic. And similarly, in Central Asia, China is the other dominant power um, in that region, no longer Russia. So on the issue of um, Ukraine and uh, Crimea, uh, as, as Tom said, uh, Russia has no desire actually to change, um, and you've suggested this as well, change its position. It does want to get rid of the sanctions. And what Russia is trying to do right now is weaken the sanctions regime, not just in Europe, but also, the sanctions are G7 sanctions. They're not just Europe and the United States. And the other player in the G7 is Japan. Japan has a serious concern about its relationship with China. Japanese leaders will describe China now as the most serious existential threat to them since 1945. The Russians are very well aware of this feeling of vulnerability, and they're playing upon that. Everything that we see now in this back and forth between Japan and Russia on their baggage left over from World War II and their territorial dispute and the lack of a peace treaty is being driven by the hope that Japan can be peeled off. peeled off and its anxiety about will the United States still be there as its guarantor of the alliance in the Asia-Pacific, um, you know, whether they can exploit that too to you know, basically play on Japan's anxiety to peel it away somewhat uh, from the alliance structure and also, more importantly, in the meantime, peel it away from sanctions. Well, in the same way that Tom said that one of the first orders of business if Hillary Clinton is elected is going to be going around reassuring traditional U.S. allies such as Gulf states, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, Israel, I am sure that one of the first things she will do is be reassuring Japan. I agree. And on her yeah. first trip as Secretary of State, which I went on with her as a reporter, um, you know, Tokyo was, one, one was her literally first stop as Secretary of yeah. State. 
um, you know, emphasizing the importance of that treaty alliance and its centrality to U.S. foreign policy. Okay, I want to be able to get to some of the questions that we got in advance from the audience. But before we do that, Tom, I want to just switch gears um, to Brexit, since you've worked on this topic a lot, and, um, and say... All right, so if Hillary Clinton wins the election, or for that matter, Donald Trump, um, what have they each said about working with Britain after Brexit? And how could either one of them as president help shape the future of U.S. with Europe, given the Brexit situation that nobody knows exactly how it's going to unfold? Right. Um, I don't think Donald Trump knows much about Brexit, except that it was a surprise result. So he loves it because of that. <laughs> and so he keeps calling us up Mr. Brexit, but it's not because of anything to do with the substance. It's just because he... And because Nigel he, Farage is his new best friend. And Nigel Farage <laughs> is his new best friend. Although when Farage went to the RNC, he said, wow, I feel sort of left wing here. This is a, uh, this is a surprising <laughs> Although Nigel Farage at the second debate yeah. said that Donald Trump dominated Hillary like a silverback gorilla. Yeah. So... Yeah. so <laughs> A, wow. ma a match made in heaven, those, yes. uh, those two. Um, I think, uh, you know, I think a Clinton administration will want to be helpful um, to both Britain and to the European Union, and their position probably will be, uh, since, the, since traditional U.S. foreign policy has always had a strong uh, Europe um, as, as, a, as a core sort of interest and goal, I'm sure that they will say, look, we can be helpful uh, in this, and we want to see a, a Brexit that succeeds for Britain, and Britain come out of this uh, independent and strong, but also that the EU comes out of it strong as well. And so you have this you know, win-win uh, situation for both. Um, the, the tricky part is, what does that mean in practice? And what I think has been sort of interesting in terms of the UK uh, position is that they don't have anything really that they want from the US, right? That there's no ask um, out there in terms of a role that the US can play. From so, the Brexiteers. Uh, from the Brexiteers. Uh, I'll get on to trade in, in one second, but just as a general sort of diplomatic thing, it's not sort of obvious what the right. United States can, can do. And Britain certainly doesn't seem to have a, a clear uh, sort of notion of what, a, of what a U.S. role will be. Now, there is a quiet diplomacy, I think, that that could be helpful and sort of appealing to both the EU and the U.K. to have the better angels of their nature prevail in terms of dealing with each other and to avoid uh, maybe some very hardline and counterproductive positions. Um, but beyond that, it's sort of still murky in terms of what it will be. In terms of trade, um, there is this FTA idea in terms of the UK and, and the US. Um, but it is, in, and I, I think the, that will be very appealing. It's already appealing on the Hill, and there's a major move amongst Republicans uh, to endorse it. Um, but very little is known about it beyond the top line uh, sort of name of a, of a free trade agreement. There's already a lot of trade between the United States and the UK. So one question is, what would it be about? And would it really have sort of bang for the buck in, in in being a benefit to Britain or is it purely uh, symbolic? And then trade is very difficult to get through anyway at the moment. And there's the whole issue of TTIP and the UK's relationship in that and whether TTIP is reworked or abandoned or, uh, or, or revived. So, um, so I think it's very, it's very sort of unclear, but there is good, I, I'm pretty sure there will be goodwill there uh, from 
a Democratic administration or, you know, I mean, Trump is you know, known. I think Republicans on the Hill are also very, uh, have a lot of goodwill as well to try to make this work if possible. All right. I'm going to ask for short answers for the next several questions so that we can get through um, some of the ones that audience members were good enough to submit in advance. Um, so Amelia San Miguel asks, aside from taking the Donald Trump route and threatening that we will abandon our allies, what tools do U.S. leaders have to incentivize our allies to actually pay more for their security, especially in NATO? Well, I think that the debate that we've been <coughs> having um, during the presidential election and also um, comments uh, from President Obama, who uh, many people here will recall um, his uh, extensive interview with uh, Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic, for example, but other comments that he's made um, <coughs> about his frustration uh, often uh, with allies, I think has already sent uh, a pretty uh, clear signal. <coughs> Certainly, in um, you know meetings that I've uh, been at um, in, uh, in was Europe, the term he used. that message has really um, got across. I think a lot of it gets back to um, <clears throat> some of the travails that you know Tom you know has been flagging in the, the European Union now with Brexit, as to um, you know whether uh, the big hits to European economies are really going to be uh, affecting their defence budgets, particularly in the case of Brexit. I mean, the UK had made a commitment uh, to two percent of GDP being um, spent on defence, but this could be two percent of a much lower GDP as a result of uh, the economic hits that have already been um, experienced in uh, the last several months, but that certainly could be prolonged out over a period of time. We also have ahead of us in 2017 um, four big elections in Europe, two bigger than the others in Germany and France, uh, then the Czech Republic and the Netherlands. And all of uh, these issues about defence and security will be on uh, those election rosters. So it's going to be pretty hard uh, for the United States to really get its um, allies to focus uh, on uh, building up these defence, even though I think that there is really a realisation now within NATO for sure uh, of the allies that they, have to, that they have to step up. Okay. Um, I like this question from audience member Bohdan Belay, who says, how does the United States balance support for domestic reform in other countries where the U.S. doesn't have the leverage to deter or challenge other local powers militarily? Thoughts? Do you read it again? Sorry. Yeah, I think the question is really saying, so the United States wants to help reform in other countries, you know, countries that may be undergoing democratic reform, but we don't have the leverage. I think this person may be thinking about Ukraine or Eastern Europe, that, you know, you want to support democratic movements, but then you can't actually deter Russia, for example, from going in and stopping a color revolution, for example. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's a. I mean, it's a. It's a big dilemma, and I think it is a. It is a problem. That the 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 issue though would be that if you if you say there's nothing that can be done, then it would probably make it much worse. And so I think in somewhere like Ukraine, it's important uh, to engage um, as much as possible for reform, even if there are these external constraints um, because of external intervention. But it's true that as long as there is a external threat to a country like Ukraine, domestic reform would be very difficult because a country like Russia has too many levers that it can that it can pull. I do think as a general rule, um, promoting reform works best when the local actors want it, and when you know, and and that's not the case everywhere. Um, it is the case in a couple of places, and so finding that moment of ripeness, like where is 
you know, rather than treating this as a, as a general policy rule that has to be applied everywhere, how do we take moments of opportunity where there is an opening for reform to back it and, and to take advantage of that moment, I think is, is sort of one of the key things um, that the next administration should, should look for. Okay. Vijendra Kumar wants to know um, which countries would it be important for the U.S. to cooperate with in maintaining an international liberal order, given that the U.S. still supports so many authoritarian regimes? Well, that's, of course, the big uh, question in our foreign policy. And, um, I, you know, I think it actually gets into, um, you know, the response to the last uh, question as well. Um, you know, one of the reasons that sometimes we're just not very effective uh, about supporting reforms in other countries is precisely uh, because we often then support authoritarian regimes based on uh, interpretations of our nat uh, national interest. I mean, it's certainly the case that before the Arab Spring uh, and before the, the um, uh, domestic um, upheavals there, that we were, you know, perfectly satisfied uh, with, uh, you know, dealing with many of the leaders uh, at the top of those countries until uh, the uh, you know, political uh, crisis, uh, crisis emerged. I think this is going to have to be uh, another part of our ongoing uh, foreign policy uh, debates here as to you know, how we handle this and then how we actually show that we do stand by our values and principles on reform and on, on, on good governance. It's, it's a perpetual challenge of uh, American foreign policy and it's always the one that actually, in many respects, undercuts uh, some of our own uh, positions and efforts uh, uh, to promote better, better governance uh, around the world. In both Democratic and Republican it's, administrations. It's, 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 it's an equal uh, problem. This is, a, this is a kind of an overall problem, frankly, actually, of anybody's uh, foreign policy. I think if we could look at most, any country. Uh, uh, most countries, they have that, uh, that same dilemma. It's the, um, you know, the, the perpetual you know, kind of response of our son of a bitch, you know, kind of in yes. any idea. I can't remember who first contacted <laughs> Wasn't it Henry him, Kissinger? Was it? Yeah, something like that, yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, maybe someone can remind us who he was talking about. Oh, I know, he was talking about um, the Pakistani leader at the time, Zial Haq, and he said he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a there bitch. That's that's apparently what he said. Okay, um, someone can can Google and check if I'm right, yeah, but we'll I think that's right. I think that's right, if my memory serves. All right, well, I have a question of my own that brings back the sort of domestic politics um, and its intersection with foreign policy. Um, and that is, we've got this growing populist, nationalist sentiment in the U.S. Even if Donald Trump doesn't win, the polls are showing about 40% support for him and for those ideas. Will that trend and theme in American domestic politics, you know, will that fight against efforts to maintain or build up our traditional alliances, or is that going to fade away? Um, is that domestic nationalism really more about trade and immigration and less about our conduct of foreign policy? Yeah, I, I think it's always been there. What's interesting about this campaign is that, and maybe it's, uh, it's stronger this cycle than before, but what's really notable is that Trump uh, has chosen to tap into it. Most uh, nominees do not choose to tap into it to, to this extent. You know, they have a sense of uh, limits or they have a sense of what the appropriate policy is. And so they, they walk up to the line, but they don't really go across it. You know, Ted Cruz was the first candidate to describe his foreign policy as America first. He 
said it first in a debate last fall. Well, it actually is a term that dates back to Nazi appeasers. No, no, I, I, in the, no, the, I, know, I, know, I know that, but I mean, he's the first one in this in cycle, cycle to, to say that, that term. I mean, yeah. Before Donald no, of Trump course, did. But of course, it's, but he, he's the first one to say that in terms of tapping into that old tradition. Right. Um, but even he did not then go and say that he was opposed to NATO or that he wanted to pull out of alliances. And so what I'm trying to say is that, that in general, uh, political leaders are, are cognizant of those limits, and Trump has not been. Mm -hmm. And he has he is really tried to ramp this up. And I think we've seen you know, the reaction. The question is whether or not future Republicans that are trying to, or maybe even Democrats who are trying to tap into that populist wave do they have the same sense of no limits that they will just try to drive a truck through all of this, or do they try to tap into it, but they, you know, they still want to be in NATO, they still want to be in the alliances, they still want an internationalist position? And I have no idea. I, you know, I could see a plausible story for either outcome, right. um, but I don't know what they will what they will do in terms of a Clinton administration. Uh, I think it will be a constraint. It's already a constraint on the economic front and trade, um, but. Uh, at the risk of, you know, having this sound like a cliche, I mean, it, it depends whether or not their policy is successful. If they, yeah. if they get success, then I think a lot of a lot of people will say will, will, will be less motivated by the populism. Mm -hmm. um, but if they fail in key spots, then it will probably exacerbate it, and you know right. we will see this return of this sort of isolationism. Well, hasn't some yeah. of that populism though been based on this sense that? others need to pull their weight. You mentioned the Jeffrey Goldberg article and where President Obama himself talked about free riders. Just very quickly, do you think that our that Donald Trump has hit on to something? Do our allies need to contribute more money to their defense, um, either through the U.S. security umbrellas that we give to Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, or the NATO umbrella? Do, do others need to contribute more? Well, I think actually they do, and we need to actually have a serious dialogue with our, our allies about this. And you know, you mentioned the Philippines. I mean, here's the perfect example of um, you know where uh, we uh, could very easily be getting taken advantage of, because we have a, 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 a new leader in uh, the Philippines who feels that he can you know basically go out and uh, you know, insult the United States and um, engage you know as he sees fit, but still then be able to kind of walk things back and keep uh, the alliance uh, structure as it is. And, you know, frankly, we've been experiencing that in many other settings. The point uh, of this also is that populism is alive and kicking in so many other settings that, you know, really we're part of a, a very similar wave of everyone trying to focus in on their own national uh, narrow interests. And uh, the leader of the Philippines is doing exactly that. Brexit is a very similar issue. And I think, you know, that could be a very cautionary tale for the United States. Um, uh, th this was driven not by just a fringe of UKIP, but by a very strong streak uh, within uh, the Conservative Party and also the grassroots of Labour, of a feeling of Britain first. You know, they're talking about a global Britain, a Britain going back to, you know, kind of, strangely enough, some mercantile routes, but also of a fortress Britain cutting itself off uh, from uh, Europe and uh, the, the waves of migrants and, uh, and refugees coming in. And not wanting to pay the bill not for people who correct, come in. Correct. But then that brings me back to the other question, which is if we say that allies should be carrying more of their own weight, paying more more of their own freight, then why shouldn't Japan, South Korea, Saudi Arabia develop their own nuclear determinants? Why shouldn't they have their own nuclear well, weapons to and, defend and themselves? And that's actually the space that we're in now. I mean, there are discussions in other countries now about precisely that issue. 
So, I mean, we're really going to have uh, a, a very crowded agenda uh, for um, uh, a new president to deal with about alliances. We're going to be unpacking, I think, you know, and we have a colleague here at Brookings, uh, Steve Pfeiffer, um, who has just written um, a new report on, you know, the other powers, the third uh, powers, nuclear powers, and their stances. Uh, these kind of questions about whether other countries will also seek um, uh, a nuclear weapon. That's been a debate in the Middle East, obviously, as uh, the uh, rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran um, has picked up. It's one of the reasons, of course, why the Obama administration wanted to move ahead very quickly on um, curbing and constraining Iran's nuclear program so that there wasn't then further proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons programs around uh, the region. They wanted to try to keep the genie in the bottle while we're so focused on what's happening in, in, uh, in North Korea. We've basically got a whole situation here where an awful lot of our allies and traditional partners are hedging, looking to put their own issues first and trying to think about how they can uh, basically promote positions because of uncertainty about where their relationship uh, with the United States lies, or in some cases, because they uh, you know, see that perhaps their interests lie in, uh, in a different direction. So this is, I, I think we're at that big inflection point now where we're going to have to address um, a lot of our alliances and a lot of our relationships. And nice plug for your colleague, Steve Pfeiffer, who is a nuclear expert and former um, U.S. nuclear official for his paper, yeah. which you can find on the Brookings website, and I also tweeted a link to oh, it great. Uh, uh, at Indira <laughs> L, so you can find it there too. So, all right, quick lightning round as we wrap up. And I'm going to ambush you with this question, which is rank the three most important alliances to the United States that the next president has to be either mending or dealing with. Go. Whoever wants to go first. Well, I, 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 I say uh, Europe first because it's our longest uh, traditional standing alliance. And by Europe, but, you mean EU or do well, you mean NATO? What I NATO? mean there is actually um, a, a set of uh, mutually reinforcing alliances. It can't just be NATO because so many countries have fallen out um, uh, with, uh, of NATO and are not likely to be in NATO either in the European context. The European Union is in, is in trouble, but we also then you know, have within uh, that um, the OSC and other institutions. So it's looking at Europe and our transatlantic partnership, Rich Large, and figuring out how we can reinforce that relationship with the, uh, with the institutional arrangements we have. Then the G7, I think, is a. Uh, it, it isn't. It hasn't Not really. Not the G8. Uh, uh, well, let's just say the G7 <laughs> for now. Um, you know, cause these things can be flexible, and uh, I hope will evolve in time. And that also gives us a link over through Japan to uh, the Asia Pacific, and I think that that has to be the second. And I think if we can get the, those two sets of, uh, of of alliances pillars set up, then we can move on more broadly. Obviously, our own hemisphere so that's with Europe, Canada and that's Mexico G7. is also pretty important. It's Europe, G7, and who you're putting in third place? I, I'm, I'm putting then, you know, the, uh, the alliances in the Asia Pacific, in the Asia Pacific uh, in third as a link place. through the G7. Okay, so very, very uh, briefly, the three, I think that three major alliances that there's some prospect for deepening and, in one case, repairing are uh, Germany, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Japan. And the three ones that I think will have a crisis or break would be very problematic are uh, Turkey, uh, the Philippines, and Egypt. Wow. Yeah. Well, I oh, agree wow. with those on the individual level. Absolutely. I wish we had another hour to talk about those, the, the three that are at crisis point. All right. Well, I want to thank everyone for coming out early this morning or tuning in to the live stream early this morning um, and hearing from Fiona and Tom about their recommendations. You can read more on the Brookings website um, from their papers. 
And please come back and join us next week for breakfast again on Tuesday morning when we're going to be doing the fourth in our election 2016 series, Big Problems, Big Questions, and Agenda for the next president. We'll be talking with Daryl West and Robert McKenzie about violent extremism in America and abroad. Thanks and have a great day. Thank you to Indira Lakshmanan for hosting these events. Our next election 2016 event takes place on Tuesday, November 1st, and features Daryl West and Bobby McKenzie talking about how the next president can tackle the proliferation of violent extremism. This event will appear on the Intersections podcast. Visit iTunes to subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria and Intersections podcasts for more in-depth discussions with Brookings experts about policy ideas and recommendations. And to listen to the other events in our special election 2016 series, visit us on the web at brookings.edu slash America's Future. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.